Hello, my name is Shayla, and I'm your host for today's episode of Pro Bono Radio. Queen's Law Pro Bono Radio discusses interesting and off-center legal topics and aims to make legal discussions more accessible to you. We strive to provide information, evoke inquisitive thoughts, all the while being entertaining. Today, we will be discussing Section 33 of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, also known as the Notwithstanding Clause, with Professor Jacob Weinrib. Before we get started, I would like to issue a quick disclaimer that the views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect the views of producers, hosts, or the Queen's University Faculty of Law. This podcast does not contain any legal advice. We just hope to facilitate an engaging and legal conversation. Pro Bono Students Canada is a student organization, and as such, this podcast was prepared with the assistance of PBSC's Queen's Law Student Volunteers. Students are not lawyers and are not authorized to provide any legal advice. If you require legal advice, please consult with a lawyer, as this podcast simply contains a general discussion of the notwithstanding clause. So, what is the notwithstanding clause? Well, I'm sure you might have heard of the notwithstanding clause through the media as it was a hot topic this past November 2022. November 2022 was not the first time that this section has been debated. A great conversation regarding the uses of Section 33, how it came about, and the ways in which it can be interpreted was initiated in the media this past November. Joining me today to discuss this section of the Charter is Professor Jacob Weinrib. Professor Weinrib has been teaching constitutional law at Queen's since 2015. He acquired his JD from U of T while pursuing a PhD in philosophy where he focused on theories of public law. Professor Weinrib is the author of Dimensions of Dignity, The Theory and Practice of Modern Constitutional Law, which is a book published by Cambridge University Press. His next book, Constitutional Rights Theory, The Impasse and the Way Out, provides an overarching theory of rights protection in a modern constitutional state. He is also the author of numerous articles about issues in public law, legal theory, and political philosophy, all the while being the recipient of the Stanley M. Corbett Award for Teaching Excellence. I am lucky to be taking public law and constitutional law with Professor Weinrup this year, so if you guys are ready, we're going to get right into the episode. Okay, so thank you so much, um, Professor Weinrup, for joining us today to talk about Section 33, and if you're ready, we'll just get right into the questions. I'm really looking forward to, uh, to this conversation. Awesome. Okay, so starting off kind of easy, just getting a scope of what's happening here. What is Section 33 of the Charter in your words? So Section 33 was a political compromise that made the Charter possible. Now, Pierre Trudeau made it his mission to bring meaningful constitutional rights protection to Canada after a series of failed attempts to do so through um, other means. Uh, And so he wanted to amend the Charter and create a system of rights protection And the point of these constitutional amendments were to confront two basic problems um, in Canadian society. One problem was a historic failing to provide meaningful protections to basic human rights. Another was a problem of national unity. And Prime Minister Trudeau saw that the country was being torn apart by different understandings of what it meant to be Canadian, um, French versus English, so-called old stock versus new stock, east versus west, north versus south, and so on. And he thought that the way to resolve both problems, 
the problem of the historical um, inadequacies of human rights protection, and the problem of a complete lack of Canadian identity was the same. It was to create um, a set of constitutional rights reflecting the inherent dignity and um, equality of each person subject to the rule of law in Canada, and the Charter was the project that would do just that. Now, the basic problem that Trudeau encountered in realizing a charter was that eight provinces opposed the project, the so-called Gang of Eight. Now, the provinces that opposed a constitutional amendment tried to stall Trudeau in various ways to run out the clock on his prime ministership. And one of the ways they tried to stall the charter project was to bring reference cases to the Supreme Court of Canada concerning the amount of provincial assent that would be required in order to amend the Constitution. At the time, the thinking was that um, the provinces would have to unanimously agree to any constitutional amendment. What the Supreme Court of Canada found um, in the patriation reference is that substantial provincial support was required, but not unanimous consent. And Trudeau took this um, ruling and uh, set about trying to figure out how to break up the gang of eight provinces that opposed the charter. So the first thing he did was he went to Premier René Levesque of Quebec, and um, he said to Premier Levesque, you believe in the legitimacy of referendums. Let's let the people decide whether we will have a strong rights-protecting charter or whether we will have the status quo. And you can run against constitutional rights and um, all support a constitutional amendment uh, protecting the equality and dignity and basic rights of all Canadians, and we'll see who wins. And so Levesque, um, of course, couldn't say uh, a referendum is an illegitimate tool, given that his whole political project was based on it. And so Trudeau said, aha, so I've now broken up the first member of the Gang of Eight, and he went to work on the remaining seven. So Trudeau now found himself in a situation where he did not have substantial provincial consent, and the clock was winding down on his prime ministership. And so the final compromise that makes the charter possible is the notwithstanding clause. Should I say more about that? No, well, that's perfect on kind of like the history and how we got here. So now maybe what I'll do is I'll just read out the first section of the notwithstanding clause for those who do not have it in front of them <laughs> like we do. Um, so the notwithstanding clause is section 33. It is, I believe, the second last section, um, and it is under the application of the Charter section. And so this section basically states that Parliament or the legislature of a province may expressly declare in an act of Parliament or of the legislature, as the case may be, that the act or a provision thereof shall operate notwithstanding a provision included in Section 2 or Section 7 to 15 of this Charter. Now, Section 2 of the Charter is our fundamental freedoms and section 7 to 15 includes legal rights and equality rights. There are a couple of subsections within section 33, um, and one of these is a sunset um, clause, I guess. And so what this one means is that this section can last for up to five years, under after which it must be reenacted. So it has a bit of a limit right there. So that's my recap of <laughs> section 33. Um, do you have anything else to add to that? I, I thought that was terrific, uh, Sheila. One thing I would say is that this provision is already more rights protecting than the parallel provision that appeared in the 1960 Canadian Bill of Rights, which was just an ordinary federal statute. Okay, and that statute allowed rights to be overridden, not temporarily, but permanently, and it allowed rights to be overridden 
um, allowed every right that appeared in the Canadian Bill of Rights to be overridden. Um, so already we can see two ways in which the, the in which the notwithstanding clause is more protective of rights than its antecedent in this 1960 um, federal piece of legislation directed towards rights protection. Yeah, that's really great. Thanks for mentioning that, Professor, because I think that distinction between the Bill of Rights and the Charter here really sheds a light because oftentimes Section 33 is painted in the media as a super restrictive clause that has no benefits or no legal reparations. Um, but yeah, I think that's really important to note is how it, it was definitely a step forward and this was Pierre Trudeau's goal. So Pierre Trudeau never really intended for this to be used, as you mentioned, and it was kind of that compromise that made the charter um, that made the charter come to fruition. So how was the section intended to be used or interpreted initially? Well, at the time the charter was enacted, the charter was an extraordinarily popular document. Indeed, it still is. And the thinking at the time was that this provision would either not be used at all or would only be used in cases where the courts went off the rails, where the courts um, did something that was um, completely unprincipled from the standpoint of constitutional interpretation. So statements were made at the time that given the popularity of the rights protecting project in Canada, the popularity that actually made the charter um, a reality, uh, that this provision would never be used. Others took the view that because of the sunset provision, namely that the override expires after five years, after a maximum of five years, um, this would make any use of the override an election issue. And because the democratic rights cannot be overridden, when um, you inevitably had an election, which is a maximum of five years under the charter, um, government has a maximum of five-year term, when you return to an election situation, the use of the override would become an election issue. And so the government would actually have to defend it and defend the use of the override in the context of an election. So at the time it was thought this wasn't used. Trudeau had a very bitter view of the override and he resented that he had to assent to it. But he also thought that we now have the ability to amend our constitutional arrangements. We no longer have to go to the United Kingdom Parliament to seek an amendment. And he thought the override was an archaic provision. And he thought that the federal government would never use it. He also thought that there's another archaic provision in the constitution that the provinces um, object to, namely the disallowance power of the federal government. So what he thought was we would have an amendment and the federal government would give up the power to disallow provincial legislation and the provinces would give up the power to override rights and we would find ourselves in a modern constitutional system. Of course, that's not what's happened. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Okay, so why don't we now move into um, one of the biggest cases, the only case, I think, that discussed Section 33, um, where the courts kind of were able to comment on the use of Section 33. Okay. The only time the Canadian Supreme Court has tried to articulate the scope of Section 33 is in the context of um, the Ford case. So this is a 1986 case from Quebec. This has nothing to do with Premier Ford, who I'm sure was otherwise engaged at the time. So in, in this case, you have um, the Premier of uh, Quebec, René Lévesque. Um, his government decides to enact legislation after the Charter is um, enacted. And what's distinctive is that he essentially applies the override to every piece of legislation on the books in Quebec, both legislation enacted before the Charter and legislation enacted after. 
Further, he applies the override not just to one or two rights, but to every right that is susceptible to the override. And third, he applies the override both prospectively, that is five years into the future, and retrospectively. So he applies the override to any right that has been exercised under the Charter between the moment the Charter was enacted and between and the moment in which this override was enacted. So the override here is not just taking away rights in the future, but in effect is taking away rights that have already been exercised prior to its enactment. Okay, and so this case was heard before the Court of Appeal as well as the Supreme Court. So do you want to talk about the decision at the Court of Appeal first and then what happened to the decision at the Supreme Court as well? This is a story that's sometimes swept under the rug, but I think it's important. And the basic question is, what is the scope of Section 33? What is the scope of Section 33? How broad a power is it? And what's so interesting about the Quebec Court of Appeal decision um, in a case called Alliance, which becomes Ford at the Supreme Court of Canada, and um, the Supreme Court of Canada decision is that the, these two courts arrive at two fundamentally incompatible understandings of what the role of the override is within the Charter. Which do I do first, the Quebec Court of Appeal or the Supreme Court? I think we should start with the Court of Appeal and then work to the, to the Supreme Court after. But, okay. Now, yeah. the, the Quebec Court of Appeal starts with a really interesting statement. There's a series of um, different um, uh, judgments um, that would have um, denied the legality of uh, the Levesque's government use of the override in several respects. Okay. So first, the... the the judges in the Court of Appeal say this is actually just an ordinary case of constitutional interpretation. Yes, the override is this exceptional provision, but it's a constitutional provision. And so it has to be interpreted in the same way and according to the same interpretive program as all other constitutional and provisions. And what is that interpretive program, just for some context as well? I mean, I'm in your class, but not sure. everyone is. So what the Supreme Court was developing um, uh, in the 1980s and in some earlier cases in which um, uh, um, a method for uh, rights protection was developed is what's sometimes called purposive interpretation. The basic idea of purposive interpretation is that it's responding to a problem about the abstract character of constitutional rights provisions and the concrete nature of constitutional disputes. And the basic question is, well, how do you determine the particular concrete protections that these very abstract, majestic rights protect. And what the court, the position the court develops is that constitutional rights are what we might call purposes or standards. And the purpose of each right determines the protections that the right will afford. So the court engages in a program where it determines the purposes of rights by trying to understand the distinctive contribution that each particular provision makes to the charter as a whole. And then it asks, um, is the purpose of this right fulfilled in the context of this particular legal dispute? So on this view, the court is trying to give effect to these broad provisions and insist that the legal reality of the constitutional state live up to its most basic guarantees or the standards so, set out in the charter. So then at the Court of Appeal, they were employing this in a comprehensive way. So they're looking at Section 33 for the first time in the courts 
using purposive interpretation, trying to understand this section of the Constitution comprehensively. That's right. So they're trying to understand what distinctive contribution does this provision make to the Charter as a whole. And the court says some very interesting things in this regard. The court says the usual pattern of the Charter is that there shall be judicial recourse, right? That if your rights are violated, you're not simply at the mercy of the government. You can go to court and, as the Charter says in Section 24.1, you can seek an appropriate and just remedy. Okay, now what the override does is it suspends legal recourse and, uh, for certain rights for a prescribed period of up to five years. So that means for the rights that are subject to the override, the fundamental freedoms of religion, association, assembly, expression, equality, criminal law protections, for the rights that are subject to the override, legal recourse is temporarily taken off the table. That leaves you with political recourse. And what's so tantalizing about what the Quebec Court of Appeal is doing in this case is they're saying, what does the Charter tell us about the nature of political recourse? And they explore how the Charter isn't simply, with respect to um, uh, the operation of the um, political system, it's not simply a system of majoritarian power, it's a system of rational and deliberative engagement on issues that affect us all. And the court quotes a line of cases um, going back to the 1930s, developing this idea. And further, the Quebec Court of Appeal holds that the basic point of the override, its basic purpose, is to ensure that Canadians are informed when their rights are being overridden so they can engage in a rational um, and informed dialogue about whether the override of rights is appropriate or whether there should be political accountability for the denial of rights. Okay, yeah. So that's basically what the Court of Appeal did right there, what we just talked about. So moving into the Supreme Court now, they came to a different conclusion. And how did they get there? And what was that conclusion? The Supreme Court of Canada and Ford interpreted Section 33 according to a completely different method than um, it's, um, the way in which it had approached the rest of the Charter. So let me just say a little bit about that. The court approached Section 33 as if its meaning could be completely distilled simply by looking at the text of Section 33 without even considering any other provision. And so the court looked at Section 33 and they said, okay, there are certain constraints on its enactment. These constraints are purely formal. They concern things like that there must be an express declaration by a legislative body and that the legislative body must state which rights are being overridden and that um, the override will sunset or expire after a maximum of five years. And what the court says is there are no actual substantive constraints on the use of the override. The court is willing to recognize one constraint that is not present in the constitutional text, and that is uh, the court says the override cannot be used retroactively. It can't be used to take away rights that have already been exercised. And their reasoning for this is that um, in statutory interpretation, the uh, presumption is that the statute will operate 
prospectively unless it explicitly states that it will operate retrospectively. The court could have made much stronger arguments in order to preclude the retroactive use of the override. They could have noted that the retroactive use of the override was inconsistent with the rule of law, which is um, appears in the preamble of the charter. They could have also noted that the use of the override um, retrospectively would effectively make a nonsense of the sunset provision. Because if the override could apply prospectively for five years and retrospectively as well, then it could apply for more than five years, which is contrary to um, uh, what seems to be the design of the override in the text. So, uh, so the court in this case was simply saying that we can distill the entire meaning and the entire scope of section 33 simply by looking at the text of that provision. Now, this is pretty doubtful. And I just want to point out um, a few uh, indications of why. So one of the most unexplored sections of the charter is section 28. Section 28 reads, notwithstanding anything in this charter, the rights and freedoms referred to in it are guaranteed equally to male and female persons. Notwithstanding anything in this charter means notwithstanding the notwithstanding clause. That means that gender equality seems to be um, a principle that is not actually subject to the override. If you just read the override and focus on that provision exclusively, if you treat it as an island where everything relevant to its meaning is contained within, well, you fail to see the way other charter rights may actually restrict its application. The Quebec Court of Appeal understood this. So one thing they point out um, in uh, that decision is that the rights that are subject to the override are intimately bound up, interwoven with the rights that are not subject to the override. So one example they give is, well, what if political expression and free expression is subject to the override? Uh, what if political expression is overridden in the context of an election? And the Quebec Court of Appeal says, no, that can't be something that falls within the scope of the override. Why? Because democratic rights, the right to vote, is not subject to the override but the right to vote relies on free political expression. And so in order to realize a right that is not subject to the override, it must protect a right that is. So in this way, the Quebec Court of Appeal was trying to provide a roadmap for what it looks like to integrate the meaning of section 33 into the rest of the charter. Um, and they were just guided by the simple idea that section 33 is a constitutional provision it has to be subject to the way we do constitutional interpretation around here. Okay, so given everything that you just discussed about reading the Constitution comprehensively, um, for example, Section 3, the political expression and having to do with democratic rights, or even Section 28 with equality rights, gender rights, what happened at the Supreme Court of Canada so that in the, in the way that they, they did not come to this conclusion. Where was the difference here between the Court of Appeal, who seems to be doing propulsive interpretation, reading the Constitution comprehensively, which is what we've seen through public law and constitutional law once we get our Constitution. What happened with the Supreme Court? So, so what happened in the Supreme Court? I think this is a really important question. The Quebec Court of Appeal isn't conjuring this approach to interpretation out of thin air. They're going back to the leading Supreme Court of Canada cases on interpretation, cases like Big M and Hunter, and employing the method of interpretation developed there. And I think these cases are wonderfully rich and methodologically nuanced. Now, 
What's striking about the Supreme Court of Canada's judgment in Ford is it simply abandons its own interpretive project, but only in the case of Section 33 and without any justification for doing so. What seems to motivate the court here is not the desire to interpret Section 33 in a way that coheres with its broader approach to constitutional interpretation. It seems to be concerned with the possibility that courts will have to adjudicate cases concerning the use of the override. Okay. And it seems that the court is concerned that it will inevitably be drawn into political debates um, when adjudicating the legality of uses of the override. And um, one thing that's important to note is that the role of the court in the scope of constitutional provisions and it's true, there may be political ramifications of doing so, but in a constitutional state, the question isn't, does this decision have political ramifications, but is there a constitutional question here? And if we're dealing with questions about the scope of constitutional provisions, by definition, it seems we have constitutional questions. So I think the court was worried that its role might be politicized, but the effect of, um, its decision in Ford is that we now have this um, interpretive imbalance. We have a situation in which certain provisions in the charter are interpreted through purposive interpretation and certain ones aren't. And it seems that the decision to decide not to do purposive interpretation, to break from this overarching uh, interpretive program, it seems like that's what's political, not the application of our interpretive method to questions about the scope of constitutional provisions, including the override. I think that's really insightful. Yeah, thank you, Professor. That's super interesting. Uh, and that's a really neat take or explanation of, I guess, the contention that exists between the Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court in previous interpretations of the Constitution in different sections and Section 33. Now, I guess moving on, um, so how, we, we've briefly touched upon this, but what are the ways in which Section 33 could be restricted, um, do any legal constraints exist? And I believe we kind of briefly touched upon this, wherein individuals can work within the charter itself because so many of the principles are related, including the sections enumerated in Section 33. But if, if there's anything else that you'd like to add to that discussion, kind of more on future directions of how Section 33 could be interpreted and restricted. Okay, so the basic question about Section 33 is what is it? And there's two basic views here. One is that it's sort of returns us to this world of plenary power mm -hmm. in which the only recourse is political. Yeah. And we know that that's a world where um, certain individuals and groups do not fare particularly well because they lack the power the means to protect themselves um, in the political process. So one view of Section 33 is it just opens the door to a world where the only form of recourse is political recourse, and there's no judicial recourse. There's another view of Section 33, and it's a view that um, falls back on this idea that Section 33 must coexist with every other constitutional provision. It is a power to override, but there's a question about what falls under the scope of that power. So. The only thing that could actually restrict one constitutional principle is another. And this means that there are potentially a whole series of available constitutional constraints on the use of the override. So I mentioned there are constraints about form, only certain rights are overridable temporarily um, and um, through an express enactment. 
there also seem to be substantive constraints on the Charter, and this is what the Supreme Court of Canada refused to countenance in Ford. Now, I mentioned earlier that the exercise of certain rights that are not subject to the override may rely on certain rights that are. And so that's what I said earlier about Section 3 and the right to vote. I mentioned also that there seem to be textual clues in the Charter that certain provisions limit the override, such as Section 28. They limit the override scope. The override does not apply. It applies to Section 15, but Section 28 tells you it doesn't apply to gender equality. Okay, but there's more. Mm -hmm. Is this what you want to hear about? This is it. Yeah, right here. <laughs> okay. Now, there are a number of cases. Uh, I, I referred to um, them earlier in discussion of the uh, Quebec Court of Appeals decision, but there are a number of cases in uh, protecting so-called implied rights. And what implied rights are are not rights that were made up because they're not in the text. Rather, they're rights that have to be assumed in order to make sense of what the text says. So the leading case on this is a case called Switzman, where Justice Rand, the greatest judge in the history of the Supreme Court of Canada, um, and some of his colleagues developed the view that there's an implied right to free political expression prior to the Charter's enactment. And the source of this implied constitutional right is the repeated signals in the constitutional text that um, Canada, in general, and the provinces in particular, have a parliamentary system of governance. And a parliamentary system of governance presupposes that persons have a right to freely discuss ideas. So the basic idea in Switzman is that in order to make sense of what is written, namely a parliamentary system of governance, you have to um, presuppose that certain rights are protected that make such a system of governance possible. So there are cases in which Supreme Court judges um, develop the idea of an implied right to engage in free political expression um, in order to make sense of the explicit structure to which the Constitution is committed, namely a parliamentary structure. If the argument in these cases succeeds, then free political expression isn't a right that magically appears in Canada when the Charter is enacted, it's a constitutional right that precedes the enactment of the Charter. Insofar as the BNA Act, 1867, our original constitution is committed to a system of government, government that presupposes um, this implied right. Okay, what does all this have to do with the override? Well, if free political expression has a constitutional house outside of Section 2B of the Charter, then even if Section 2B of the Charter can be overridden, free political expression has another constitutional source that cannot be. Okay, and so I was actually thinking while you were talking about that, a question that I have with regards to implied rights then is, what would happen then if there is express override of Section 2B, for example? So Section 33.1 indicates that Section 2, including um, the freedoms of thought, belief, and expression mm -hmm. are subject to the override. Mm -hmm. um, what I'm suggesting is that freedom of political expression has a constitutional basis in Section 2B. It also has a constitutional basis in the parliamentary structure of governance. Mm -hmm. The basic argument of the Switzman case by this really great judge, Justice Rand, um, the greatest judge in the history of the Supreme Court of Canada, is that our parliamentary system of governance, which is referred to everywhere in the British North America Act, is unintelligible in the absence of a right to free political expression. 
This means that the government of the day may override Section 2B, but if it doesn't amend the Constitution to strip away the parliamentary system of governance, a right to free political expression remains. It's okay. a tantalizing idea, and it's one our courts haven't engaged with in the context of the override. Right, so it's finding almost these other sources of our rights beyond just what is provided here. That's right. The basic idea here is that the rights and principles in our constitutional structure are deeply interrelated. And so the override provides powers to temporarily suspend certain rights, but those rights may have a place, have a home somewhere else in our constitutional architecture, or rights that are subject to the override may be presupposed by rights that aren't, in which case there may be constitutional arguments to make against the use of the override that aren't mere matters of political recourse. We think this is an impolitic use of the override. There may be bases to um, think critically about whether other constitutional principles and rights that are not subject to the override constrain the use of its exercise. Sure, sure. Wow. Okay, that's a really, really cool, interesting idea. I feel like it's a really great future direction for the Section 33 and the way that it is interpreted. Um, it goes beyond just, I guess, reading the plain language of the section, which is really, really interesting. So, I, I just want to say, though, these implied principles are sometimes um, criticized on the basis that the judges are simply making them up. I think that doesn't actually track what's happening in the cases where these principles are elaborated. Rather, principles like federalism, rule of law, um, free political expression, it's very difficult to make sense of our constitutional texts as they are written without reference to these principles. To even say that they're unwritten, I think, is a bit of a stretch. So take federalism. The Supreme Court treats that as an unwritten principle. And indeed, it's a, it's a principle that could restrict the use of the override because a provincial government does not gain federal jurisdiction by using the override and the parliament does not gain provincial jurisdiction by doing so. So again, we have a principle that would constrain the use of the override. This principle is sometimes called an implied principle, an unwritten principle. There's a sense in which it is and there's a sense in which it isn't because sections 91 and 92 of the British North America Act are all about the powers of the provincial and federal governments. They're all about federalism. So the idea that these principles are unwritten and therefore made up, I think it's better to think about these as labels for what is written mm -hmm. rather than judicial inventions or insertions into the constitutional text. They're deeply rooted in the constitutional text. They're the principles the constitutional text is striving to articulate. Yeah, and we can't help but run into them when we're interpreting the constitution and using the different pieces of it. Okay, Professor, so before we wrap up, um, do you have any closing thoughts on this discussion on Section 33 about interpretation? Anything else that you want to add? Sure, I want to add this. Some people might think that my comments here about how the use of the override is constitutionally constrained in a much more robust way than the Supreme Court has recognized in this Ford case. Some people might think that my comments today about the constitutional restraints on the use of the override are... A dead letter. After all, the Supreme Court of Canada pronounced in Ford that the use of the override is subject to constraints of form, express declarations, temporary, not retrospective, but that Section 33 does not apply to substantive issues. 
I think that's completely wrong. And I want to just say this issue is not resolved until we have one theory of interpretation that applies to the entire charter and to our entire set of constitutional arrangements. So long as we're cherry picking which mode of interpretation we use for which provisions, we're not engaging in constitutional interpretation at all. We're simply giving effect to preconceived preferences. That sort of project, this patchwork of interpretation where there's no overarching structure that illuminates every constitutional provision in relation to every other, that's ultimately driven by political preferences. The use of a principled and overarching theory of interpretation that's then applied systematically to every provision in our constitutional arrangements, that's how you get politics out of constitutional law. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Professor. Okay, so thank you very much for joining us and leaving us with that. That's a great way to think of it, uh, especially with regards to all the different media coverage, um, discussing politics in Section 33. But yeah, thank you very much for taking the time today to record this podcast with me. Your thoughts have been very insightful. Um, So yeah, thank you. It's been a real pleasure to join you today. Thank you to all of our listeners for joining us today to learn a little bit more about Section 33 of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Thank you as well to Professor Weinrib for taking the time to contribute to this discussion. Once again, I'm your host, Shayla. For more Pro Bono Radio, check us out at probonoradio.com or on most podcasting platforms and broadcasting weekly on CFRC 101.9 FM, Kingston's only campus and community radio station. Check us out there if you enjoyed this podcast and feel free to share it with any of your family, friends. Thank you again. Have a great day.